This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 5th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Russell Jander. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good morning. The reading of the day is from Acts. Chapter 7, verse 54 through Acts 3. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then he cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and he was entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the Word of God. Good morning, Restoration Road Church. You guys are awesome. Um, I love getting to be here with you. Uh, I am Russell Jander. For those who don't know me, I'm an elder candidate here. Um, And I just want to mention straight away... um, how humbling it is to know that God has decided uh, to use me this morning uh, to bring the word. Uh, we are, in fact, in Acts 7, 54 through 3. We will go to 751 for a bit of a recap. Uh, but before that, uh, I'm going to pray uh, so we can uh, get the word uh, after that. Father God, we just thank you so much for everything that you have done. You show us how great you are, and we are humbled by that. And we humbly come this morning to seek your face, to know your truth as our guiding light in life. And we know this is only accomplished by the Spirit. God, it's by your Holy Spirit that you're moving and working in the world. So please cause us to rely on you and you alone right now. We have no, no hope of seeing your glory apart from your spirit. So God, please move me out of the way. I pray that the words that are necessary to reach your people would come through me in this time. And please protect us now as your word works on our hearts. Help us to be receptive to any conviction and help us to be thankful the comfort that comes from knowing you. We want to know you, 
and to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we were in uh, the earlier part of chapter 7 where uh, we were looking at the truth that Stephen spoke uh, to the accusers and high priests when he was falsely charged with blasphemy. Uh, essentially, they made up some false accusations to get Stephen in trouble, and instead of, um, instead of defending himself, he took the opportunity to preach uh, the revealed truth of the Scriptures and unpack for his listeners the shocking ways that the Scriptures amplify the beauty of the cross. Over and over, Stephen presented a history lesson that's uh, not only about the foundations of the very faith these devout men are claiming to defend, but also the nature by which God brought those events about in history um, and how they serve as precursors to the work of Christ on the cross. So Stephen concludes with a bold truth, and it's the truth that though they're resist or through their resisting of the Holy Spirit, the people he's speaking to are actually responsible for betraying and murdering the Messiah or the righteous one. He tells them they have killed Jesus, the Son of God. What happens because of this sounds a bit like a nightmare. Um, the depiction of brutality in the face of the genuineness of the gospel uh, paints a picture for us of some truly ugly moments in history. And as we prepare for what this means, I encourage you to carry with you as a comfort during our time, something that should empower you to not dismiss the hard elements of this passage, but instead to hold on to it with the attention and the weight it deserves. So let's carry with us, with us a promise we have throughout Scripture, but it's a promise that's clearly and concisely detailed in Romans 8. Uh, go over with me to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says that we know, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, there should be Bibles in the back of your chair, and if you don't have one, take that home with you, please. It's our gift to you. Um, and, and, and read it. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay, so um, Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, this is you. And if Christ is not yet the complete authority, satisfaction, and joy of your life, I pray that the Spirit would work to open your heart to this truth because there's serious, ultimate, complete freedom waiting for you here. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live and died the death we deserved taking the punishment for our sins onto himself, giving us freedom from sin, and bringing us back into relationship with God. So if we continue in Romans 8, actually if we look before that, we can see that Paul is talking about the sufferings that we may experience in life. And I feel like this has a lot to do with what we're getting into in the text here. So just go with me to verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is a bold statement for Paul to make, that the sufferings we experience in our present time are not worth comparing. You and I know, some of us more than others, how intense suffering can be. But the Bible 
is telling us specifically that they are not worth comparing. That doesn't mean that they're going to be easy. Even though we've been saved in Christ, we're not taken immediately into heaven, but instead, in verse 23, it says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption. That this groaning is a process of our life and that God is intentionally using it for his good, but also, according to Romans 28, Romans 8, 28, for our good. So ultimately, we know that this groaning and suffering is on purpose, and that's what we have before us in this text. So the depth of God working in all things for our good has been my recurring prayer as I've been preparing this sermon, not only because of the nightmarish events of this passage, but I also know personally the depth of suffering that I've been through in my life, um, what I continue to go through this week notwithstanding. Um, I also know the weight of the struggles of life, and I'm aware of a lot of the things that the people in our own congregation are going through. Not only that, but across the world, uh, there is sickness, cancer, death, persecution, these things and the events of this passage all have to exist somehow to reveal God's glory to his people. And as painful as it seems to us, what happens to Stephen here must not exist outside of that truth. That this awful event is working for our good, if indeed we are in Christ. And therefore it actually stands as further proof to us of a wonderful reality that should give us our greatest hope. And that's that Jesus finished work means everything. Everything to us now and to what will come. But I understand, I know that this um, assertion of God's decided use of suffering brings up some conflicting realities. We're essentially dealing with a simultaneous correlation here of God's sovereignty, his supreme power and authority over all things, and our responsibility for the sin that exists in the world. God essentially made everything, but as he's a perfect being, he can't do evil. So as creation, we are held responsible for the evil that exists, evil that's worthy of death. And if we're not responsible, then he wouldn't have had to send his perfect son into our broken world to put him on the cross and to die for that very sin that he wasn't even responsible for in the first place. So we come to this place this morning together knowing that our responsibility for the sin in our lives points somewhere. It has and always will point to our need for the finished, wonderful, beautiful, painful work of Jesus on the cross, bearing our sin and our brokenness so that we don't have to. And our hope and our joy is this. Under his sovereign hand, we are responsible for our decisions and actions, and he has provided a way through his son for us to not only be freed from the penalty of those bad decisions and choices, the motives of our sinful flesh, but to also enter into the freedom and the joy of our calling in Christ, being completely cleansed of our sin before God as we continue to be sanctified or become more Christ-like in this life and work for his glory through the power of his spirit. So with all that in mind, 
Let's tuck into the text and find out how this suffering is on purpose. Stephen's been telling the people in the synagogue the ways they've resisted the Holy Spirit's revelations up to now. And he says in verse 51, if we jump there, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who, had, who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We have two types of people that are revealed in this text, those that are full of the Spirit, and that's actually only Stephen in, in this particular text, and those that are resisting the Holy Spirit, who are the unbelieving Jews. In multiple places, we've seen Luke, who's the author of Acts, detail uh, Stephen and describe him as being full of the Holy Spirit. And it's in this fullness, it even says that his face appeared to the witnesses like the face of an angel before his sermon. And yet, the people do not respond to him as you would expect someone to respond to an angel. Um, in 54, we see that they responded differently. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That enraged, the way that that translates uh, from the original Greek is, uh, is to cut to the heart. Um, that, that in some translations, it's uh, even translated uh, cut to the quick. I don't know if uh, some of us younger folk are not uh, familiar with the phrase cut to the quick. Um, but the, the quick is the, the flesh part of the fingernail, the, the, the really sensitive part that if you get, you know, something gets in there, you, you just react right away. That's what they're talking about here, that the heart that's being described is so much tied into our flesh that it's, it's so cut to the heart. We would say, like, cut to the core. Um, it makes sense to think about it this way when we understand that the Word of God uh, is described in Hebrews 4.12 as being sharper than a two-edged sword, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Stephen, preaching the word of God here, is stabbing the unbelieving heart of the Jews straight in the core of who they are. And their response is to grind their teeth. That gnashing of teeth I don't know if you've spent time thinking about that. Like, why do we do that? Um, it's from a lot of things, but it can be from anxiety, and we also do that in an attempt to keep back physical attack. Um, so there's this restraining, this persistence of resistance to the Holy Spirit that we're seeing in the unbelieving Jews. And it's fitting that this is the way they'd be described. Because you've heard the concept of gnashing your teeth elsewhere in Scripture. Um, you may think of it as an echo um, of something that actually Luke also wrote in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 13, Jesus describes what hell will be like. He says that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
that when we're ultimately apart from God, this is what it'll feel like. But how terrifying it must have been to be Stephen in that moment, surrounded by grown men, grown angry men, gnashing their teeth because of what you're saying. I, in and of myself, my tendency would be to defend myself. I'd be looking for a bat or something. I'd be running for the door. Um, But by the Spirit, we're empowered to respond differently. Stephen's response is completely different from that. We see in, in verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's response to the sin that surrounds him is to gaze into heaven. When he's been drinking deeply of the word, he's been preaching the word, it's been part of who he is, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He looks into heaven and he sees the face of Jesus. But he doesn't end there. What does he do? After he sees Jesus, he proclaims him. In 56, he says, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When our response to sin that we see around us, we see inside of us, is to see the revealed glory of God's redemptive plan, then we have to proclaim it exactly as we see it. Even if it feels weird, even if it feels, you know, oh, I don't know if I should say this or not, say it! I'm telling you, it's important and it's what we're called to do, being full of the Spirit, to proclaim the realities that God's revealing to us. And it could be even dangerous for you. We see that it's dangerous in a worldly sense for Stephen here. In 57, their response is that they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. We see a picture of what it looks like to be apart from the Spirit here. In the flesh, our voice wants to drown out the voice of God. We want to silence him as much as possible. But in Christ, we have a hope. We were already in Romans 8. So let's jump back there briefly and look at Romans 8, verse 26 through 27. In 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That our hope is that in Christ... We hear the truth that's being spoken throughout our lives, in our relationships with each other, through the study of the word, through the revelation of prayer. We have the hope that the Spirit is at work in us to respond in love and not to react in the selfish, broken bent of our hearts apart from Christ. So let's continue in Acts 7. 
In 58, we see the ultimate fulfillment of what happens when the unbelieving Jews are resisting the Spirit. In verse 28, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. Um, that, it seemed odd to me when I read that. Um, if I was just reacting out of anger, I would have stoned him right there. Um, but they intentionally you know, took him out of the city, and, and I was wondering why that was. Um, it's actually uh, a commandment in the Old Testament. Uh, in Leviticus 24, 14 through 16, it talks about uh, that if someone blasphemes the name of God, there's specific actions that you're supposed to take. You're supposed to drag them out of the, uh, of the, the, the camp, and you're supposed to stone them exactly in this way. Um, so they're not throwing rocks just out of anger. It probably is that as well. But they truly believe that this is what they're supposed to do. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So this implies that there were people watching who understood as well the commandment and wanted to participate in this. Um, there, there we see the picture of Saul. Um, Saul is standing approving of what's happening. And for those who don't know, Saul is actually talked about later in Acts in his transformational uh, uh, um, coming to Christ. Christ reveals himself to him on the road. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but for now, Stephen responds to this attack in a similar way to how he responded earlier. He looks to God. In 59 it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He could have thought this, or he could have prayed it silently. But there's an impact to our public proclamation in the midst of attack. This statement that Stephen says might sound familiar to you. Uh, again, it's, it's an echo um, of something that Luke wrote as well in retelling uh, the death of Christ. Uh, if we go to Luke 23, 46... Um, Luke 23, 46 says, Then Jesus, Jesus is on the cross. Uh, there has been an earthquake so powerful that it split the, the veil of the temple in two, and there was darkness over the whole earth. And Jesus was on the cross, and he said, calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's possible that Stephen in this moment is quoting uh, Jesus. It's possible that he's remembering the story of um, what happened with Jesus um, and what he said. But it also could be that Stephen, so full of the Holy Spirit, is so aligned with the death of Christ and he's, his becoming like Christ that that is the overflow of his heart. Whatever the reason is, his being full of the Spirit is made even more obvious by the verse that comes after this. In verse 60 of chapter 7 in Acts, 
It says, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. How could anyone ask God to forgive someone who's stoning them while they are stoning him? My contention is that when we've seen the glory of God, sin is revealed for what it truly is. It's possible that in that moment, when Stephen saw the face of Jesus, he caught a glimpse of the purpose for the suffering, not only that he was experiencing, but that he was overcome with compassion for the condition of the people who were attacking him. Again, this is a echo to what was told of how Jesus was suffering on the cross. In 23:34, it says that God or that Jesus on the cross said, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." My prayer is that we would see suffering this way. It's only by the Spirit that His truth is revealed enough in us. But when it is, what a powerful ministry it would be for the world to experience a people that when we're faced with the most terrible oppression, our response might be, Lord, my God, please forgive them. Up to this point in the text, we've seen, um, we've seen the difference between what it looks like to be apart from the Spirit, what it looks to, like to resist the Spirit, and what it looks like to be full of the Spirit. And full of the Spirit, Stephen prays that God would forgive them. And the truth is that God intends to do just that for at least one of the people he's talking about. Saul is uh, positioned here as an authority over the actions that happen in, uh, in the life of the Jews. In 8.1, it says that, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered, they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Saul's agreement seems to initiate a great persecution um, they're pushed out to, it says, Judea and Samaria, which is very on purpose if we remember what we learned at the very beginning of Acts about what Jesus said to the disciples about what, or the apostles about what they are going to do. He says in, eight, or in Acts 1.18, no, 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This persecution seems like a bad thing, but this fact shows us that it was on purpose from the beginning that God was using this terrible suffering to enact a greater good for his people. It's spreading the gospel out to more and more places. His love through the gospel is beginning its journey to the ends of the earth. But we continue in verse 2. 
it says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Just because God's using this for good doesn't eliminate the impact of what it feels like to experience it. As we see in verse 2, devout men mourned deeply. We don't see them say, it's okay, Stephen's fine, he's in heaven, let's just keep on living our lives. We see them mourning deeply. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 clearly tells us that we don't mourn as those who have no hope. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't mourn. Jesus himself, himself uh, mourned. So we see in John 11, uh, 35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible, um, it simply says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept um, at the tomb of Lazarus knowing that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, Jesus was so aligned with the condition that we're in, the reality of suffering, and he felt it. He felt it deeply, knowing what he was about to do. So faithfulness shouldn't produce apathy in us, but it also needs to produce a different kind of grief. A true Christian grieves not without hope, but instead a groaning anticipation. The suffering that we experience deepens our joy in Jesus as our deliverer from death to life. We continue in verse 3 as we see Paul in his state apart from Christ. Paul, well, it's, it's, his name is Saul here, but later in Acts you'll see him called Paul. Uh, in verse 3, but Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul here is being put in contrast to what's happening with Stephen. Um, I come from a narrative background. I got uh, a, a degree in like creative writing, and I've been making videos for a long time, and so story is, uh, is pretty rooted in who I am, and in, in narrative, you have this theory called the foil. The foil is a character that you place in a story to articulate the opposite of what the main character is. And so, right here, we see Saul being placed as a foil. He's in contrast to the godly, spirit-filled grief of the apostles. Saul is painted as almost an automaton here, like a cold robot enacting terror without regard for the life of those he's afflicting. I mean, he was so cold that he was holding the coats of the people who were persecuting him, persecuting Stephen. If this is where the story stopped, that would be terrible. That would be awful. But it's not. There's a wonderful story we're going to get to in Acts, where Jesus himself reveals himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. As Paul's going to persecute more Christians in Damascus, Jesus shows up as light, and it blinds Paul, and he says to him that he needs to go and see this man named Ananias. And Ananias sees him and says, God's going to use you to preach the gospel. Uh, and Paul has a fantastic 
transformation. And I mean that in the realest sense. Um, he, is, he was blinded by the light that he saw. After hearing this, his sight is regained, and his first reaction is to go and proclaim. To proclaim the power of the gospel. This suffering that we're experiencing and that we're reading in the end of seven and the beginning of eight is on purpose. And Paul recognizes how God's orchestrated this from the beginning of time in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. Galatians 1, 15 it says, but when he, being God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This is something that was foundational from the beginning of time. The persecution that Stephen is suffering and the way in which he's suffering it is on purpose and God is in charge. And yet, Paul is ravaging the church here in 1 through 3 under the sovereign hand of God. So this is my encouragement to you this morning. Consider what God has saved you to. If you are not a Christian, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was on purpose from the foundations of the world. And it holds the power to eliminate your sin and it can restore you to right relationship with God. If you have questions about that or if you want someone to pray with you, please come and find me, come and find Mark. Uh, there will be people up here to pray with. It literally would be the joy of my heart to share with you in that. If you are in Christ, you have a responsibility to preach into the world, despite your brokenness, that God has given you life in Christ, through Christ and for Christ. And literally everything we experience, everything, the beauty and the brokenness, is part of that gospel we get to preach to each other. Ultimately, for all of us, true joy is found in the fullness of the gospel. By seeing his glory and his design in all things, the completion of that joy is the proclamation of it. So God saved us from death to life, which means by the power of the Spirit at work inside us, we now get to proclaim to all the world that one day we will finally see what all this is for. We will see his glory in its fullness, and we will see Jesus' face just as Stephen saw it. In Revelation 22, 3 through 5, it says, And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. To wrap this up, the Spirit is at work in our lives. And when we resist Him, we find ourselves outside of His gifts. Instead of love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we find ourselves in anger, in bitterness, seeking wrath, sometimes even violence, if not acting it out, at least considering it, all this time we're ignoring the very fact that God is working the suffering in our lives we are reacting to in order to bring us joy through the revelation of his glory by the Spirit living in us right now. Through our past circumstances and challenges and in any current struggles, thanks be to God for this. Any pain, any anguish we face today, when our joy is found in the truth of Jesus' finished work for us on the cross, and through that free gift, we see the glory of God. We have a truly wonderful eternal life that's so beyond our understanding that we can't help but be in complete wonder at it as we're indwelt by the Spirit and are being filled with the Spirit throughout our lives. When we come to Christ, the Spirit lives inside of us and we live a life that's bringing sanctification or Christ-likeness throughout our lives. In Romans 5, 3-6, it says, We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. That's a promise. Because why? God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So until he comes or until he calls us home, let's have our hope rooted in embracing the full spectrum of what God has done in our lives. The good and the difficult because the fullness of his great gift of freedom and joy and love is all wrapped up in this. And by the grace found in the complete picture of Jesus, through faith in what he's done, let your joy be found in drinking deeply of the Spirit. And in humility, embrace the power, the wonder of the richness and the great and powerful work he's doing. And that he will continue to do through us to spread the true gospel across his creation for his glory. Let's pray.